Steve Cole is a prolific and versatile writer for children and teenagers. His diverse body of work includes the uproarious Astrosaur series crammed with groan-worthy puns and the thrilling Young Bond series. He's also the editor of Doctor Who Publishing and writer of novels for the Doctor Who series. Today, he joins me in the reading corner to share his encyclopedic knowledge and to tell us about some recent and new projects. So can I call it an obsession? Well, if you want it to be unkind. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I probably am slightly obsessed. Uh, The trouble is, there are so many people who who are, so it kind of feeds that obsession. I mean, what is amazing uh, to me um, is if I were to talk about any episode uh, from the long-running Doctor Who series, you would come up with the title, you would tell me what series it was in, what serial it was, and what episode it was. It becomes almost like a dating mechanism. I I know when um, Guy Fawkes Night was, for example, in um, 1977 and 1978, because I know the episode of Doctor Who I missed to go and watch the firework display. Um, I can tell you that I had my first hernia operation on the day that uh, the Trial of the Time Lord Part 14, the final part, was uh, broadcast. I remember watching it post-general anaesthetic in hospital. Uh, I can, all significant dates um, up to 1989, when the original Mm. stopped, I can link back to events in my childhood. Missing episode two of Destiny of the Daleks because I was on a Cub Scout camp. Now that's tough. That's tough. The only other way you could enjoy Doctor Who was by reading the books, and that's why they became such a pivotal part of my childhood. You know, so it was it was a very very important part of getting me into reading, mm-hmm. and it boosted my vocabulary no end in my English essays and uh, story writing. I would uh, freely borrow uh, big words I'd learned from these Doctor Who books, mm-hmm. and I remember being eight years old and seeing the author of some of these books at Bedford Central Library. His name was Terence Dix. And it was the first time I had that sense of when I grow up, I want to be Terence Dix. I want to do what he's doing. And when I became the BBC's Doctor Who project editor uh, back in the 90s, 97, I think, um, the first author I got to work with was Terence Dix uh, on his book, The Eight Doctors. So I went from reading them to actually uh, working with pretty much the guy who taught me how to read. And I think such a good reminder to us as well about those connections between different media. Being a fan of television programmes doesn't mean that you won't also be a reader. And actually, the connection can be made between the two. And just thinking about some of those writers over the full period of time, uh, there have been those that have crossed both ways. So Terry Nation, who is a particular favourite, I think he was the one that first wrote the Daleks, wasn't he, into the first doctor and he mm. wrote a fantastic children's book called rebecca's world yes named after his daughter yes yes lovely book um in fact in the doctor who story i'm watching at the moment the planet of the daleks um he also names a character rebeck there so he was he was quite keen on uh, slipping his daughter into, uh, into doctor <laughs> sometimes it's going the other way so particularly recently i think both frank cottrell boyce obviously neil gaiman slightly different um situation but also Mallory Blackman have written for Doctor Who haven't they? Yes yes and Mallory's been a, a fan for a long time and Penguin did a um, one short story per Doctor Who and got some fantastic people to do them like Philip Reeve and Charlie Hickson and mm-hmm. Patrick Ness um, and Mallory did one and you know, the first page is, <laughs> is, is it's just wonderful reading Mallory Blackman doing techno babble 
<laughs> it's got some fantastic stuff doing the Doctor and Ace and the TARDIS. And of course, a lot of the um, the TV Doctor Who writers, you know, they they were raised on these Target Doctor Who books, much as I was. Um, you know, Russell T Davies and Stephen Moffat, Gareth Roberts. They've all come to it through Doctor Who fandom to becoming, you know, working on it professionally. So it's uh, interesting how it, it exerts a hold over the uh, the creative imagination of uh, of some amazing people. So tell us a little bit more about your role as um, your consultant editor, aren't you now, for... This is your kind of second round of working with the BBC. On these. Is that right? Tell us a little yeah. bit about the history of that and what you do. Well, yeah, well, back in 97, 98, 99, I was working for the BBC, BBC Worldwide, and I was their Doctor Who editor. I was meant to be project editor sci-fi titles, but in practice, that was Doctor Who. Um, there wasn't much else going on in science fiction at that time. Red Dwarf, they tried to make me responsible for sometimes in terms of you know, videos and audios and and stuff, but there wasn't that much going on. It was Doctor Who was the big thing, and it was a huge amount of work because it was like twenty two eighty thousand word novels publishing each year. Huge amount going on. I was pretty soon burnt out of the uh, of the whole thing, but um, I kept my hand in by writing the, uh, the occasional book for them. So when it came back in two thousand and five, I was lucky enough to be asked to uh, contribute a title. So I wrote one of the first Christopher Eccleston novels with the Slovene. No one was expecting Doctor Who to be a success, really. There was a lot of uh, doubt over it because it had ended up quite unpopular in television backwaters in the late 80s. There was suspicion that lightning would strike twice. Of course, Doctor Who delights in proving people wrong and, uh, and being brave and forward thinking enough to do things differently. So uh, essentially reinvented um, Saturday evening as a, as a family slot and the publishing reflected that. We were very much aiming books at a, um, on more than one level. Um, so I was, yes, contributing in my own way to that still and still getting to write Doctor Who comic strips. And then uh, a few years ago, um, I was asked if I would come back to oversee editorially some of the uh, publishing going on. So I was, um, yeah, I found myself back on it. And it's one of those things that once you are back, it's very, you can't do it half-heartedly. You have to kind of, you know, throw yourself back into it. Um, and it was such an exciting time because it was just when uh, Jodie Whittaker was coming on board as the female doctor. So it was a chance to start a whole era afresh. So got Juno Dawson in to do um, one of the uh, first novels and Anina um, McCormack, who... She's done some fantastic writing work on other franchises like Star Trek. She's just had a Picard novel out. Um, so it was very exciting, again, to be working with uh, with all sorts of, of different writers on all sorts of different projects, but also to do some of the old throwback Target publishing. Um, the Target books were the novelizations of the TV stories of Doctor Who, and there were just a few that were outstanding that were never completed at the time. But um, last year we finished that whole collection by filling the last of the gaps and next year, well, 2021 in spring, um, those paperbacks will appear and they will be, um, they'll just slot onto the shelf in uh, and we'll have a perfect run from 1963 to 1989 of all those Doctor Who's going forward as well, actually novelizing some of the new episodes, the new series episodes as target books. So in a way it's passing on the torch to a new generation as well as satisfying all the nostalgia in the 40, 50 something Doctor Who fans who were also uh, reading back then. 
Yeah. I want to ask you something there, because you mentioned Jodie Whittaker, the first female doctor. You mentioned a female writer. Uh, looking at the credit lists of the old TV series, very few female writers. What about with the books? Any female writers? Well, there's Jack Rayner that I know of. Um, yeah, indeed. Yes. Who yeah. else? You had Sophie Aldred, who was a Doctor Who companion herself, um, did a hardback novel earlier this year. And we've had Joy Wilkinson, who wrote one of Jodie's first series. So it's been good to, uh, to get the, the, the series has been much better at getting in a, a better mix of uh, of people. Mm. So well, I think the publishing you know, has been um, reflecting that. When I came to um, commission the Target storybook, which was a lot of short stories across all areas of Doctor Who, um, half the writers were female, which I think was more than any previous Doctor Who publishing venture. So it's nice to keep pushing forward. Interestingly, when Doctor Who began, it was perhaps its its most diverse. The very first director was an Anglo-Indian guy called Warris Hussain. The very first producer was the first female producer at the BBC, Verity Lambert. Um, So you had very different attitudes to the patriarchal BBC hierarchy going on, which I think definitely resulted in Doctor Who being something so different. And, uh, and yeah, I'm recognising just the... uh... I wanted to ask you a question about writing for Doctors of the past and whether that presents any continuity issues. Do you have to give quite a detailed brief to the writers? Because you've got different writers writing about different Doctors. How do you keep that consistency? Well, it, it, it varies, really. Um, but um, a lot of the people, they know Doctor Who backwards and are aware of where it will fit in the continuity. If not, then it falls to me to suggest how we can mesh it in with the continuity. The wonderful thing is, you know, Doctor Who fans love to argue about the money shy in the same way that, um, you know, fans of anything will argue about the smaller details or the best way of doing something. And what's interesting is when you get writers like Neil Gaiman, who contributed a brand new story for the uh, Doctor Who Adventures in Lockdown book that came out in support of Children in Need in November 2020. And, you know, Neil Gaiman is a fan of Doctor Who. Not only has he um, written for it um, on television, but um, you know he's slotted in this uh, this story. He knows his continuity. He knows um, this Sylvester McCoy nineteen eighty eight Doctor Who story, and he's taken a, uh, a key plot device of that and um, and sort of like worked it in, finding new things to say and new things to do mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't completely disrespect the past. Is is what we're looking for? And of course, that's not just about plot. <laughs> And it's it's about tone as well, isn't it? Because there have been huge shifts in tone with Doctor Who over the years. Indeed. You know, the extent to which it's lighthearted or serious. or I mean, it does vary, doesn't it? Does that follow through in the writing of the books? Or do they feel more as though they're one tone and voice in that respect? It depends. Um, you can change it, change that tone for um, for effect. Certain times in the series, yes, as you say, have led to um, to different approaches, different producers have come in. And, yeah, messing that up, really, and, and doing a very light-hearted story in a serious era or a particularly serious story in a light-hearted era is, is a way of, um, yeah, just mixing things up, keeping them new. Um, as long as you're true to the characters and how they would react in the situation, you can do anything. That's always been one of the strengths of Doctor Who. When you've got a blue box that can carry you anywhere in the universe at any point in time, it is impossible to run out of stories. So let's talk about some of the up-to-date uh, publishing uh, projects that 
that uh, you've been working on, including your own book, of course. But let's start with a short story collection, the lockdown one, which you've already mentioned. What's all that about? Well, it's called Adventures in Lockdown. And um, during the lockdown, Chris Chibnall, the, uh, the showrunner, put out a couple of short stories wanting to, you know, entertain and distract people in troubled times, really. And this book gathers some of those stories. It also has new stories from um, Mark Gatiss, who, of course, has um, read many of the TV shows, as well as done a ton of things <laughs> across all genres. Um, and Vinnie Patel, who has written a couple of uh, the best-received um, Jodie Whittaker stories as well. He does a short story as well. But it also gathers up other TV writers to uh, produce stories for it. So, yeah, it's a lovely collection. And, of course, a hefty chunk of the cover price goes to uh, children in need. So it's been really done for charity as well. And then tell us, you've got a new book coming out, a David Tennant story. Yes, um, there's a uh, Doctor Who kind of mini-series called Time Lord Victorious, which uh, which takes um, the David Tennant Doctor just after a story called The Waters of Mars, where which is a very scary story where a base of human astronauts is nearly wiped out by these very scary alien water beings, the flood. Um, and the Doctor decides, you know, he's fed up of, of people dying and not being able to do anything about it because of the laws of time. He thinks, I'll break the laws of time. I will save these people. Um, it's like a slight hubris that comes with being the last of the Time Lords. You say, well, there's no one here to stop me. The laws of time are undone. I'm going to do this. You don't like it, deal with it. Um, then, of course, tragedy ensues in the wake of this. And uh, this is right towards the end of David Tennant's time. He knows his time is limited. He knows he's going to die, regenerate. Um, and in Time Lord Victorious, in my book, The Night, The Fall and the Dead, we see um, David Tennant's doctor zipping off way, 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 way back in time, way further than uh, they're meant to go, back to the um, the dark times, ancient times, billions of years ago, um, to a time before uh, death really got a grip on the universe. It turns out that uh, in those days, um, people used to live forever, barring accidents. Um, and then a race called the Kotura appear and decide that death is their gift to spread. They will decide the lifespans of other races and so bring mortality to a universe. Well, the Doctor is at a point where he's at a fairly low ebb and having come to this universe where life proliferates, he's slightly aggrieved that this is where it all begins. This is where the, the misery and sadness of, uh, of death as a part of our life cycle comes in. If he can defeat these aliens who are bestowing lifespans, or maybe the universe will be a different thing. Um, he won't have to uh, spend his time uh, battling to save people. Um, so it's one of those times where the Doctor is, uh, is tested. What he knows is right and what he knows he can do aren't always on the same page. So it's interesting to take the Doctor into a place that's quite dark for him, a uh, time where he's actually trying to... Uh, preserve life in the universe on a grander scale than he ever has before. So yes, writing the night, the fall and the dead was, which was my, um, it was, it was my first time writing for David Tennant's doctor since 2009, I think. So it was quite fun going back 10 years later to a character that I'd enjoyed so much his run on TV. I love it when the doctor's going through periods of angst. Those are my kind of favorite <laughs> bits. And of course, you're a Spider-Man fan as well. We won't go there now, but the angst comes through in that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, which doctors do you like writing about best? The David Tennant one, definitely, um, because 
he's, you know, he's such a such a fun character to write for. He's so energetic, a real force of nature. He looks young, but he is old, and he has the the weight of the universe on his shoulders, and that sometimes weighs pretty heavy. Um, but also, I think it was such a a wonderful time for Doctor Who with Russell T Davies in full swing, and the show would never be more popular. So I was just going to ask you um, about the importance of the assistant and the relationship between the Doctor and the assistant and how vital that is for the success of the series and the books, really. It is vital to it because the companions are, in a way, our window into the Doctor. When it started off in 1963, the Doctor was a very remote old man, played by William Hartnell and his companions were our points of view. There was a history teacher and a science teacher who could help the audience uh, up to speed on some of the concepts in the stories that they would encounter because there are a lot of historical stories that Doctor Who went through back then where no science fiction elements at all beyond the time travellers themselves. Um, And there was also the Doctor's own granddaughter who was... uh, We didn't know where they came from, who they were. They were aliens. So we needed those human perspectives. And... As it's gone on, that has you know, increasingly become popular to the point where sometimes the companions have absolute equal equal billing or, or, or a greater starring role. I mean, we look at Sarah Jane Smith, who was um, a companion when I was growing up. And of course, she um, came back to the new series and then span off into her own set of adventures, the Sarah Jane adventures. That wasn't even the first spin-off she'd done. In 1981, she did uh, Canine and Company, where she was having adventures with Canine, Doctor Who's robot dog. So, um, yeah, the companions have always been hugely important to that. In my The Night of the Fallen of the Dead book, there's an interlude where the Doctor and his first companions come back, make their presence known. Um, and it was, um, yeah, a real... A real privilege to uh, to get to write this little scene from the point of view of uh, Barbara White, the very first human companion to go into the TARDIS. You know, they become part of the legend. And what's lovely about the world of books is, of course, you can get those characters and bring them back. Poor Jacqueline Hill, who the actress who portrayed Barbara, died long, long ago. But her character can live on forever and find herself in new adventures, uh, just as long as we keep making them and keep enjoying them and reading them. Immortality. Mortality. A different kind. <laughs> um, can we talk about adversaries? What makes a good adversary? And do you have a favourite? Oh, well, it needs to be someone who can really represent the diametrically opposite point of view of the Doctor, which I think is why the Daleks and the Cybermen tend to be, you know, amongst the you know, people's favourites, because you know, a Dalek has an intense dislike for the unlike and will exterminate it. And the Doctor is someone committed to um, saving life. So straight away, there's a, there's a huge opposition there. But the Cybermen, their horror lies in the fact that they can't see their own horror. They see the emotions as a, as a weakness to be removed. Whereas for the Doctor, this is what life is all about. So again, you've got the big diametrically opposed views that Cybermen represent everything that Doctor's travels uh, tend to fight against conformity and ruthlessness and the lack of emotion. So those are obviously the, the two big ones. I've got a soft spot for the mandrels, these kind of like these flared trousers, swamp creatures from um, a story in, um, <laughs> in late 1979. But uh, I think no one else in, in the world has the same opinion of them as I do. So... <laughs> 
Yeah, you and I did an event, didn't we, probably about seven or eight years ago. Uh, it was a Doctor Who panel, which you chaired so brilliantly. Um, one of the things at that event uh, that just shines through is that people of all ages come along and there's a kind of equalising between adults and child, which, which is so wonderful. And they're both in playful spirit. They're all getting dressed up. And yeah. so I, I wondered, you know, whether your perspective as a child and an adult, whether it's changed in terms of what is now your favourite compared to what was your favourite as a child. So, for example, I know that as a child, my favourite episodes were the Yeti episodes in the London Underground, maybe because I lived in London, it was familiar to me, but I absolutely loved those. But as an adult, it's the trippy Patrick Troughton episodes called The Mind Robber. It's like, unlike any other Doctor Who, actually, and I believe that the writer of those series didn't write anymore, <laughs> he just wrote that. Yeah, Peter Ling, the author of that, he actually created Crossroads and uh, <laughs> Compact, these uh, these these very um, workaday um, BBC soaps, well, ITV soaps. Um, but what's interesting is that with soap operas, the characters often have a life of their own, and people will accost the actors in the street and berate them for what their characters have done. And I think it was that sense of how fictional characters can acquire a reality that inspired him to write The Mind Robber, which, which features the likes of, um, yes, Gulliver and... Uh, Rapunzel. And Rapunzel, indeed, and, uh, and D'Artagnan makes an appearance, and Serrano de Bergerac, and, uh, and all sorts of uh, different fictional um, characters. We were pleased to hear that those Yeti episodes in the underground, The Web of Fear, they're, they're, they're back, they, are, they exist again. They were rediscovered. There's only one missing episode from that story now, so you can... The question is, will I appreciate them as much as I did when I was a child? Well, this is it. This is it. The thing is, with Doctor Who, you can always see past the, the tattiness of the sets and the and the unconvincing effects to know what the intention was, you know, what the production team were aiming for. And Doctor Who has always been a show where budget has never stood in the way of ambition, even with some of the, the new series episodes that were being done, you know, sort of, 15 years ago we look back now and we can see that the effects are dated even since then they don't look so convincing at the time it's like wow doctor who has never seen anything like this before but now we accept oh it looks a bit ropey that's just the nature of things but i think the stories themselves are what stand up and there's one notorious story for doctor who um from around 1978 called underworld which draws heavily on um on greek myth they had no money, so they couldn't afford to build any caves. So they basically used green screen to sort of slot in caption slides of caves in the background. And everyone's just running around and half of them, you know, their arms and their legs are disappearing as they catch the wrong bit of light and they're standing in the wrong place. And, you know, it's dismal as a visual um, experience. But the story itself is uh, is, is sound and, and fun and has all sorts of, uh, of interesting angles is made you know additionally rich by the introduction of these these mythical overtones from from greece you've got some very clever allegory going on um so i think you can always see past what ended up on screen and and enjoy it in fact while underworld is decried by fans the general public stuck with all four episodes and it got like you know 10 11 million people watching it you know so they weren't put off in the way that the fans are possibly they think that's what doctor who is always like <laughs> so they're always it's always been the, the big joke about you know the unspecial special effects and the uh, the silliness of it all 
which you know you can sort of laugh at to a degree but you always remember that they were setting out to make not a children's show but a family show it was always made by the drama department never by the children's department um it has to appeal to children to survive why wouldn't you want to appeal to children they're the best audience they're the ones whose imaginations need the most stimulating Mm. um and i think as long as we have some of that child inside ourselves there's always a place for Doctor Who and I'll never be able to watch it and be left cold or left untouched. You'll always be thinking, yeah, that was scary or that was thrilling or that was funny um, and laughing with it rather than at it, I think. What a fabulous stopping point that is, Steve. It's eternal and we'll be forever laughing with it. Yes. At it. And being scared by it too. Absolutely. Uh, thanks so much for talking to me in the reading corner today about all things to do with the doctor. My pleasure, Nikki. My pleasure.